0: Glenn Washington, the host of Spooked, a Luminary original podcast. Luminary always believes in amplifying black voices. And this month, they've curated a selection of their favorite episodes to share with you. If you like how this episode sounds, you can listen to more by going to luminary.link blackvoices. That's luminary.link blackvoices. This is The Blacklist Podcast. I'm your host, Franklin Leonard, a founder and CEO of The Blacklist. Joined, as always,
1: Kate Hagan, Director of Community at The Blacklist.
0: This sort of falls under the category of very special episode of The Blacklist Podcast. In February of 2020, when Kate and I were about to relaunch this thing, we did an episode that maybe one day you'll all hear, where we asked each other the questions that we would ask all of our interview subjects you're familiar with them by now. First movie that you saw in a theater, et cetera, et cetera. And when we came to the question of what movie would you like to screen for every human being on earth, we had the same answer. And that movie was Do the Right Thing, written and directed by Spike Lee. And given the state of the world in really all of 2020, but especially following the murders of George Floyd and Richard Brooks, it only made sense that the interview that we wanted to do was with Spike Lee. And so with a bunch of phone calls uh, and a lot of favors, That is exactly what we did. It was quite the conversation, right, King?
1: It's a rare thing that you get to meet people who have really inspired you. And it's an even rarer thing when those folks turn out to be incredibly generous and thoughtful with their time. And I think that's what happened with Spike. We're going to talk about his entire career. We're going to go backwards in time. We're going to start with The Five Bloods and what it was like to make that movie for Netflix right now. We're going to take it back to Bamboozled, which recently got a beautiful new edition in the Criterion Collection and is easy to see for the first time in a really long time. And then we're going to go back even further to Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, which is celebrating its 31st anniversary right around the time this episode is aired. We're going to talk to Spike about early adventures in moviegoing, some filmmakers that have really inspired him throughout the years. And it's just a really thoughtful conversation about the role that movies play in our lives and how the culture talks to movies and movies talk back to the culture.
0: Indeed. And that is why our conversation with Spike Lee is our July 4th episode for 2020. And let's not belabor it. Here's Kate and my conversation with Spike Lee.
1: So I'm going to kick us off with the question we open every conversation with Spike. And that is, can you remember the first movie you ever saw in a movie theater?
2: Well, it might not have been the first film I saw, but the first thing I remember, my mother, my late mother, who was a cinephile, took me to see Bye Bye Birdie at Radio City Music Hall. I think it was an Easter show. So that came on in 63. So I was six years old.
0: And was that the movie that made you fall in love with film? Or was that a later thing? Or was it an instant, like, wait, this is this is what I'm going to be doing?
2: No, I, I mean, I don't know what I was going to do at six years old. <laughs> you know, uh... My father, I'm the firstborn. My father hated Hollywood films. So he wasn't going. So I became my mother's movie date.
0: But was there a film that, that flipped the switch for you?
2: No, I was, I had to choose a major. So I chose mass communications. I went to Morris College. But my major was across the street at Clark College, which is now called Clark Atlanta University. Great professor, Dr. Herb Eichelberger, who was still teaching there. So it wasn't like you might, you know, these classic stories where this little kid was in a, movie theater and he saw Jaws or whatever it was and got struck by lightning. That wasn't me. (laughs) But so when did it
0: happen? But when did it happen, though? Right? Like, look, I feel like, look, I grew up in West Central Georgia. I was a black kid. There wasn't anybody really other than you that I could point to who was doing that, even though I love movies. And it took until after college for me to say, wait a minute, this is something I... Where'd should you try. go to college? I went to Harvard. We, we, we're going we're uh, to Har- De- we're gonna talk about... we're going to Harvard
2: Negroes. We're going to so. talk about
0: Pierre Delacroix. Them Don't Harvard worry, Negroes. We're going to talk about Pierre Delacroix and Bamboozle. <laughs> Don't worry. I rewatched it for the first time since starting in the industry. I have questions about documentary versus satire. But it didn't occur to me that it was possible until much later in my life. And I'm curious, like, you know, you chose mass communications, but when was it, this is what I'm going to do? Because by... By, by the time came, we have the it book, was it was, this, is, this was my mission.
2: But it wasn't like it wasn't a, a stroke, of, Uh, I, didn't, I did not get struck by lightning. It was gradual. I mean, Mass Vacations was not only film, it was radio. I had a radio show, WCLK, <laughs> print journalism, and TV. So that's where it, you know, happened.
0: Was there a moment in your sort of film education prior to, to the gradual decision to work in film that you felt like you actually saw yourself on? on screen for the first time? In front of a camera? No, 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 no. You in the audience looking at the screen saying that character is me. Like I see myself on screen for the first time. No.
2: Never. The first time I saw myself like that was Mars Blackman <laughs> and she's gonna have it. So that was like, Mars is unique. I ain't knowing. No one's seen Mars before. She's gonna have it. That's, that's a fact.
0: And is there a character outside of the ones that you have created and played that you feel like you identify with anywhere in film history? Or do you feel like you are creating out of whole cloth these characters that no one's ever seen before because you've never seen them in part?
2: Well, I wouldn't say no one's ever seen for everything, but, but definitely for Mars Blackman. And uh, that turned to something else. That made history with Michael Jordan. Yeah, man. That built Nike, I mean, to where, I mean, it went, it went into the stratosphere, those commercials that, you know, Mike and I did, that, that I directed.
0: Actually, that wasn't something I had planned to ask about, but I don't know that I've necessarily heard the story of how that came together and when you knew, well, when, and when did you guys I'll know you, that it all changed?
2: You, Jim Riswold and Bill Davenport are two executives that worked at White & Kennedy. At the time, even now, White & Kennedy was Nike's advertising agency. Yeah. They're out of Portland, where Nike's headquarters is. And they read something about this independent film by a black director, they went to see it, and they saw Mars wearing Jordans, this sort of scene where Mars on the phone with a big post of Michael Jordan behind him. And they got the idea to pair Michael with me. Michael just signed a big deal with Nike. He had a uh, director's approval. So they brought the project to, I mean, the ideal of me to Michael. At the time, Mike had never, he didn't know who I was and never heard of She's Gonna Have It. And at that time, Mike could have really gone with big-time Madison Avenue directors, Joe Pitt coming, I mean, people like that. i had never directed a commercial in my life. And it wasn't until two years ago, during the All-Star game, which was a freezing Toronto, I mean, it was cold as a motherfucker, I finally got enough courage to ask Michael if he didn't know who I was, had not seen seen she to Have It, why'd he choose me? And he said, motherfucker, you wear my sneakers? <laughs> <laughs> and I like to say it's an honor to have Michael Jordan call me a motherfucker I mean on several occasions <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history I mean literally that's, that's, for the history that's books that's the story
1: I think we're all missing movie theaters right now so I'm curious when you go to the movies where do you sit do you have a snack situation do you like going with friends do you like going by yourself and what's the setup like at home
2: well i don't go to concession stand and i just try to pick out the best place in the middle and try to get the right space for all the to get the best sound and do you
0: also have a similar setup for home like is
2: your no no not i, I venue i do but not not here in the city marley's venue we have a uh the theater i mean a the small theater but it's theater setting
1: we're gonna move to talk a bit about I think in this moment we're all sort of reconceptualizing how we experience movies and one of the ways we get to do that is thanks to Netflix so I would like to talk about the five bloods I think one of the most striking things about the movie is the incredible fusion of documentary footage and archival photos throughout. In many ways, this movie feels like a synthesis in all the incredible doc work you've been doing with your narrative filmmaking. I'm wondering, at what point do those sort of documentary elements come into your process? Are you, when you're writing the script, are you kind of conceptualizing what images and footage you want to include? Is that something that happens during the editing process?
2: It's a combination of both. Some things were in the script. Some things we discovered in the editor room, you know, with more documentary footage was coming to me from my great, great, great researcher, Judy Ailey. So it's not either or.
1: That's really interesting. Do you work with a researcher on most films or is there a kind of yes. cap- case? Oh, yes. yeah. That's something I think a lot of people don't realize is a part of the Any pr-
2: film I do, even before I start to write the script, I do research. And that's why I tell my students... I'm a professor of film at NYU grad film school. got to do research. Unless it's, your, unless it's autobiographical, and no one's going to know your life better than you, but can you, research, research, research. Can
0: you walk through the strategy of the research for The Five Bloods? I mean, look, you've got this movie, arguably the first attempt to sort of tell the story of black veterans from Vietnam. Like, how do you, like, what's the battle plan for the research on something like that? Or is it sort of organic and you just adjust as you get new information?
2: Not. I have my researcher send me everything you can have. And you're just consuming it all,
0: just processing it all? Yes.
2: have to. Books, magazines, periodicals, documentaries, feature films. I just, I, I, I immersed myself in the Vietnam War.
0: And at what point in that immersion do you begin to put pen to paper to
2: tell the story that you're going to direct? Is there a moment, or is it... Well, we're, we're getting a little backwards here because this was not a original screenplay by me. Right. Kevin Wilmot, my writing partner, we did... There's another... There's a, the original script was written... This original script was written on spec. was by Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo. It was optioned by their producer, Lloyd Levin. He brought it to... Isle of the Stone, who's done some great Vietnam films. Oliver, for whatever reason, decided not to do it. Then they brought it to me. So that was the, that's how the it happened. So
0: you get the script, and at that point, you start doing the research. And then you and Kevin came on to sort of make changes based on the research. I, I'm just trying to get a sense of your process, because I don't think that's a question that's often asked of you.
2: Yeah, made a change. I mean, the, the original script was called Last Tour, and only one of the five soldiers was... Uh, African-American.
1: I was going to ask about the process with you and Kevin when you're working on a script together. Obviously, we can't sort of be in physical spaces together right now, but what's it like for you guys as you're perfecting a draft together? What's that notes process like?
2: We spent a lot of time together. I fly him from, he's he's in Kansas, where he's a tenure professor, at University of Kansas, KU, the, jo- the, Jayhawks. the Jayhawks. And so he's here, you know, we watch stuff and then he goes back. Home and you go back and forth.
0: You look you've worked with Kevin, and I think one of the, the most fascinating things for me about your long Chirac, Black
2: Klansman, and now this. This is the third one. This is the third one. Five Plus. But you have a lot of wildly
0: long-term relationships with your collaborators. I was going back through and trying to make a list. Obviously, Terrence Blanchard, Ruth Carter, win Thomas, and then on the actors. Acting- Barry Brown. Barry Brown. My editor, Barry Brown. Exactly. That's what I mean. But like it, it, you ha- it's, it's almost like a theater troupe that, that, that sort of moves through all of your productions going back 40 years now. And it's true with the actors as well. I mean, you've literally, like, you worked with Denzel and his son. And I was looking back at your relationship with Delroy. Arguably his first big role was West Indian Archie and Malcolm X back in 92. Then he basically plays essentially... A version of your father in Brooklyn two years later, then Clockers. That he
2: plays, he plays my father. He plays father. your father. I,
0: I didn't, I didn't know how to say it exactly,
2: but you know, <laughs> my real life father. And then
0: Clockers, He's still alive.
2: and then twenty. There's a twenty-five year gap. I'm just curious how yeah, you. Yeah, th- we talked. Delroy, Delroy and I talked about that yesterday because I had not realized it'd been twenty-five years since we last worked together.
0: what's that like? Does that change? Like, how does your
2: relationship change? No, we're still tight. It's like we did, like we worked yesterday, and. I asked him, does it seem like 25 years, of Del- Delroy?" He said, "No, it doesn't. That 25 years went quick." But how do you think about what those? I did, what I did find out yeah. in an interview is that was I completely forgotten. I wanted him to audition to be one of the cornermen for Do the Right Thing. Shut up! And he turned the part down. <laughs> I forgot that. Wait, with, in fact, with I don't remember that. With Frank, with with Frankie Faison, uh, uh, of the three guys, I know which one he auditioned for, but he didn't want to do it. <laughs> That is
0: wild. I mean, look, his his performances. I mean, I, people are rightly losing their mind for it. And honestly, all all the performances are, are strong. I'm just, I know,
2: but this one, one, oh Lord. Yeah. Did you? He went there. Did you? Did you know
0: that was gonna happen before you guys got on set? Like, I mean, look, I think a lot of us have been waiting for Delroy to to get his just desserts for years now. And did you? Were you like, this is the one?
2: Well, here's the thing, though. You get all the talent in the world, but if you don't get that role. Mm-hmm. All it takes is that role. And he ran with it because I want people to understand Delroy will not just fall off the turnip truck right now. <laughs> right. This is what I'm saying, though. He's been putting in work for years. Yeah. Work, W E R K. So, I mean, he's been working it. And now, you know, whatever reason this industry is funny. But I am so happy that he's getting his shine, getting his light, his spotlight, getting his acclaim. It's long overdue, long overdue. And I'm enjoying it as much as he is.
0: This is actually a really interesting pivot to my plan next question, coming
2: back to Bamboozled.
0: So I was rewatching it.
2: Because why? Because you were one of the Harvard Negroes?
0: Uh, <laughs> that is not why, per se. You had, you had no
2: dreads when you went to Harvard.
0: I got the dreads while I was at Harvard, between mm-hmm. summer and uh, sophomore and junior year
2: uh, uh, of of college. Mm-hmm. All right, I want to see the yearbook pictures. <laughs> I you I, I guess say <laughs> you the yearbook pictures. I want to not... see, the crimson, I wanna see the crimson yearbook pictures.
0: It's not. It's not the best look. It, the the transition was a good one. Let me just say that. Man, I'm
2: just I'm just messing with you. Boy. I know, <laughs> no, I'm mean, just I'm just messing with you. But here's what I'm.
0: But here's what here's what's fascinating to me about about that movie. Look, I hadn't watched it. I remember seeing it in the theater when it came out in New York. I had not watched it. Since I started working in the film industry, and I was watching, and and first of all, it's one of the a very small group of your films is not readily available on streaming. I had to go get a copy of the Blu-ray from a a video rental spot in South Pasadena.
2: How long ago was this? This was this week. Yeah, but you know, we have it just came out of Criterion. That's the one that I got.
0: So I I read that, and I was watching the Criterion interview on the Blu-ray, and you mentioned that New Line just kind of let you make the movie. That like with you had you had you had a limited budget so they were just like go do your thing, and I have to imagine it was sort of similar to the making the Five Bloods for Netflix and they have a reputation for being like look this is the deal go make your movie all good, and I'm just curious how your views on creative freedom have changed in the 40 years that you've been making film in this industry right like you mentioned Delroy you can have all the talent in the world but until you get your your opportunity to show what you can do. It almost doesn't matter. And I think it's similar for filmmakers and coming from She's Gotta Have It where you literally did it yourself without any of the infrastructure, but now having navigated for 40 years an industry that is, look, be honest, predominantly white and arguably white supremacist, have your views on how to use the system, how to navigate the system changed because watching Bamboozled for me as somebody who's 15 years in was jarring. And, and, and it felt more like documentary than satire.
2: Well, I have Final Cut.
0: <laughs> that makes it easier. But even still, with Final Cut, do you feel like... I mean, look, maybe, maybe,
2: maybe not. I'm going to try to answer your question. It's a very good question, too, my brother. Even with Final... No one's going to let you just make a film and they don't get to ask questions. There's always going to be a discussion because they have comments. Right. And I think I'll be just honest and say I never got a good note from a studio. So with Final Cut... The notes I get that I like, we do. And the notes I don't like, we ain't do it. <laughs> right. But without Final Cut... Without Final Cut, you're at mercy of the
0: studio heads. Bottom line. And I, I would imagine that your assessment of their judgment leaves something to be desired as it applies to the kinds of stories you're trying to tell.
2: Well, it always gets tricky when certain other people try to tell you who Black people are. So, you know, that, that gets kind of strained. I would agree. doesn't come up rarely, but... Well, you take that head-on and bamboozled. There's, something, there's just some things that you just don't know better than me about my people, my peeps. But,
0: but I think you take that head-on and bamboozled. I mean, you got Rappaport in there being like, you know who number 24 I mean, I'm is. Not yell,
2: I'm not yelling screaming. I'm just trying to educate. Uh, let me give an example. At the end of Malcolm X, the movie ends with Nelson Mandela. Mm-hmm. And one of the big studio notes in addition to the length of the movie, was why is Nelson Mandela in the movie? And it really was an educational moment. I had to tell them, Mandela spent 27 years, or 27, 28 years, Robins Island prison, and he has said many times that autobiography of Malcolm X, as told to Alex Haley, was something to help them get through those years. It's a legitimate question, and I, you know, I just had to let them know, because they didn't know. Speaking of Malcolm X, I also rewatched that this
0: week. And I had forgotten that the movie opens over the American flag intercut with the Rodney King beating. And you put so
2: this documentary stuff ain't new. Uh,
0: It's not new.
1: Kate. Well, I know. I'm just saying the five blood feels like Kate, Kate, (laughs)
2: Kate, Kate. I'm I'm just having Kate. Franklin and Kate. I'm just having fun. We, we, it's all, it's all love. I'm not attacking nobody. Oh, no, we know. We know. It's all love. It's all love.
1: I just wanted to say I felt like The Five Bloods was really like a culmination of all of these sort of filmmaking techniques you've been using for many Ballad years. Valid point.
2: Valid point. You were on point.
0: Wait, But I want to go back to this American flag intercut with the Rodney King beating, right? Because then you have the murder, the murder of Radio Rahim by a cop with a chokehold. Right now, we're all
2: watching videos of the— Hold up. The, can I just say something yeah. first? The NYPD chokehold murder of Ray Raheem. Raheem is a fictional character. Right. But it was based upon the real-life chokehold murder by New York City Trans Police of a graffiti artist Michael named Stewart. Michael Stewart, which right. took place in 1983. Him and Basquiat and,
0: were tight. And Eleanor Bumpers, and, and, it was a, and it was also a reference to the Howard Beach.
2: Eleanor Bumpers, oh, there's a whole bunch of, yeah, yeah.
0: But I think, and, and it's interesting, because here we are 35 years later, 30 years later, we're watching the murders of George Floyd. Since what? Since, uh, since Do the Right Thing.
2: 30, what?
0: It's 31
2: since Do the Right nah, Thing. that came out... 80, 89. It'll be 31 years, June 30th. Right. We came out the same day that of Tim Burton's Batman. That's wild. Wow. Same day. It's a That's good Friday crazy. night at the movies. Ninth, 1989. <laughs> Another song, i like, hey, don't fucking show <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Chuck D. <laughs> Nowhere near. <laughs>
0: so we're watching the video of murders like George Floyd and Richard Brooks. Now. Right, and these are real people and we're watching the videos. You've referenced previously, right, that the people used to trade lynching photos like baseball cards. The first Hollywood blockbuster was Birth of a Nation, which you famously responded to with The Answer, which you made in your first year at NYU, which was 40 years ago.
2: But, hold on. Yeah. The first scene in Black Klansmen Right. has one of the most famous shots shots in cinema history where Scarlett Herod is walking through all of her dead and wounded yep. rebels. And then it, a big tracking shot that ends on a tattered, torn, stars and bars. Fuck that flag. Yeah, fuck that flag indeed. Do you believe that images... That flag, to me, the same way my Jewish brothers and sisters feel about the swastika, I feel about that flag. And them motherfucking Confederate statues need to come the fuck down. Agreed. In my opinion.
0: Do you believe that images of violence against Black people are are fundamental to the American identity?
2: Since 1619, I was literally going to mention. I was going to mention the, the hat landed, as part of the question. It, when the first ship landed,
0: but I, 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 Jamestown. I just wonder. Those are images that recur because you were making films about the American experience and the Black American experience. And I'm just curious. Your thoughts on the extent to which these images, because again, like you said, you were, you were commenting on the murders of Michael Stewart and or Bumpers and Howard Beach. We, mm. we, we're now 31 years later.
2: Yusuf Hawkins. Yusuf Hawkins. I mean, the list. Jungle fever is dedicated to Yusuf Hawkins. So we were saying, look, I'm not trying to blow my horn. No, but I think that. you've earned it, especially in this regard. I mean, the first, the last line spoken. In school days by Lawrence Fishburne. Wake up. I wrote that in '87 came out eighty-eight. The first line to do the right thing is Wake Up by Samuel L. Jackson. I wrote that in eighty eight, came out, eighty-nine. So I was trying to get people to listen to me to be awakened before they could be awoken. <laughs> it's true. But here's my,
0: so so but here's my question about that spike.
2: And that's a look, that's a fact.
0: It's you know, it's absolutely a fact. That
2: is a fact. And, and you know what my friends call me? What? Nico Domus! <laughs> that's yeah. I mean the motherfucker be like Spike, how the fuck do you know this shit? It, it, You'd be like thinking about shit before it even fucking happens.
0: <laughs> it's hard to argue.
2: <laughs> we would talk about global warming and do the right
0: thing. Yeah, hottest day of the year. I mean, that that is and that's part of the setting. I mean, you got Aussie sweating his ass off as the movie opens. <laughs> um, but look, so let's talk about do the right thing. The punctuation to the murder of Radio Rahim is literally the quote it's plain as day they didn't have to kill the boy. Mookie is the one who throws the trash can. And the movie ends with quotes from Martin and Malcolm and then the photo of them together. Again, you can check my math. You were basically double the age you are at which you made it. When was the last time you watched the movie? And do you think about Do the Right Thing any differently now than you did at 30, given everything that's happened in the 30 years since?
2: Well, the first thing, I was not married. <laughs> I married 26 years, beautiful wife, Tanya. Two kids, two grown kids. So that's what jumps out of right away. But again, I don't want this whole podcast. Think like Spikes is blowing himself up because that is not, that's not what I'm here for. But do the right thing was this coming June 30th will be the 31st anniversary. And it's like the film was made yesterday. Mm-hmm. So there's two ways to think about it. That is still unique. It's still new. And then also. Black people still being murdered, right? Dying. In. If you seen "Do the Right Thing," how can you not automatically think of Eric Gardner and then King George Floyd? Mm-hmm. In fact, I put out a short film. I don't know if you saw it. Three brothers. Yeah. We intercut those the fictional murder of Ray Rahim with Eric Gardner and King Floyd, King George Floyd.
0: But given that that's continued for thirty years, does it change your opinion on what on how? Black folks should be responding to it, right? Because, again, the movie closes over Martin and Malcolm.
2: All right, all right, here's the thing, though. That's a very good question. It's never been about how we respond to it. It's been about how how our white sisters and brothers respond to it. And you've been watching CNN, like I have. People are marching all over this God's earth, chanting, yelling, screaming, Black lives matter, and they're not black. It's true. So that gives you hope. Though. That's the big difference. That's the, for me, that's the big, big difference. Also, it's the young, you see a young generation of my white brothers and sister. They're out there in full effect. Yeah. I mean, forget about the rest of the world for a second. White folks are marching in Salt Lake City, the Iowa, where ain't no black folks for a minute. And there's certainly, <laughs> yeah, there, there may be some, but there certainly aren't a lot. Yeah Not, yeah you're right I mean you got to look long and hard <laughs>
1: My dad's family is from uh, Hazard County, Kentucky, which is certainly nobody's idea of uh, a diverse county. But there was even a Black Lives Matter protest in Harlan, Kentucky, which I thought was really incredible. But you know, you're mentioning the younger generation. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's really that's what I'm surprising. About. You mentioned the younger generation. I'm wondering if fatherhood has sort of changed your approach to how you watch movies and what it's been like to, you know, you mentioned your kids are grown up now. What was it like, you know, sort of showing them the classic films through? Hollywood history through their childhoods.
2: Well, unfortunately, a lot of my films, they could not see early on. <laughs> True. Except for Brooklyn. But uh, my kids are great, and to them, I'm not some big movie star, I'm just dad. The thing is that the big difference has been, been married, because I'm married to a strong Black woman, and she lets me know without any hesitation. <laughs> She don't give a fuck. (laughs) She don't let me know how she feels about my work, about scripts. So she's one of the first people to get the script. So she's been very, very, very helpful in my the growth as a man and, you know, in my work. So I have to give big, big credit to Tanya Lewis-Lee.
1: Shout out to all the moms and wives out there who are supporting and you know making lives in the arts—not just for you, but for your entire family. Shout out to all the moms out there.
2: Yeah, thank you for saying that. Because mothers and wives, you know, they—they, I mean, they're doing stuff that you don't hear about, but they be working on their husbands because <laughs> they know their husbands are like in development, <laughs> <laughs> a work, a work in progress. So, like you said, I'm going to co-sign what you said, Kate. I'm going to co what you said. Shout out to all the wives slash mothers who are working hard on their husbands. (laughs) (laughs) Giving some good studio notes.
1: Yeah. Because I
2: know. Because I know. They're like, motherfucker, you do what? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I'm reading this. What the fuck is this? Oh, no, we're talking about
1: this. (laughs) you got to have those people in your life to check you, though. I think we've all met people who have nobody (laughs) around them to be like, don't do that. And then look what happens when somebody. We all need it. Yeah.
2: And then I like to say this, though, because when you when it's from somebody that's your partner in this serious business, when somebody's your partner, your wife, the mother of your children, you know, it's coming from love. You know, it's coming from love. L.O.V.E. And we men have ego, but, you know, I, I learned to get past that, you know, because I just couldn't be in a position where, yeah, I know everything. When the fact remains, I didn't know everything. I still know everything. And if I was a 5% I'd say, you know, we got to be listening to our earths. Because <laughs> <laughs> the earth, they'd be knowing. <laughs> the 5 percenters. <laughs> oh, man. And all you don't know, oh Google, Google five percenter. Most death was a five percenter in bamboozle. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and all even the Mau, Mau even the mouse Mau felt like dead on. It could could like that? Could be, you could make that right now, and it would be the same commentary.
2: You know a film that could be made, made right now too. I don't know if you ever saw it, Drop Squad.
0: Oh yeah,
2: that's been a minute.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Check
2: it out.
0: I'll go. I'll go recheck that out.
1: Speaking of movies in the canon, I was thinking about that great list you put out in 2013 of 100 films that every aspiring filmmaker should see. It's a really incredible primer, not just for people who want to make movies, but anybody who loves movies. But I'm wondering, you know, since that list has come out seven years ago in accounting for things like Oscars So White and other conversations about diversity in the industry that have happened since then, how are you thinking about how we sort of divorce the idea of these, you know, quote unquote, quote, great movies and the canon from this one kind of authorship where it's very much just like straight white guys 90 percent of the time?
2: Well, that's a very good question. And you reminded me that list has to be revised and it was never meant to be public. That list was for my students really? and somehow it got out. So thank you, Kate. You're doing a great job because you're making you reminding me of stuff I got to do. <laughs> <laughs> Quick because... little to do list. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, school, if I do decide to go back, you know, in the fall, NYU, I, I, mean, I, have, to, I have to revise that list. And, and it just brings me to something else. I show birth of a nation to my class. I don't think that work should be racist as it is. I still think it'd be seen. You just, you have to put it in. Here's, a, here's my problem with, with when they screen, when they showed birth of a nation when I went to NYU. They never put it in any historical context What they left out, no matter, in in addition to the great just film grammar that D. W. Griffith, you could say, invented, we were not told that this film brought the KKK back from death. The KKK was dormant. This film made the KKK rise from the dead, and consequently, black people were lynched, were murdered because of the film. That was not taught. So when you go to show that film, you got to say that. I think Gone with the Wind should be shown. Put it. Look. Very funny story. I went, the first time I went to see Gone with the Wind was a fourth grade class trip. Wow. Fourth grade. Because it had been re-released, you know, restored, whatever. This was way back in the 60s. No one's pulled the black kids aside to talk about imagery of Butterfly McQueen and Hannah McDaniel. Hattie, look. She didn't have a choice. Her famous quote, better play made than being made. Mm-hmm. That film should be shown. Their schools here in America still have banned one of the greatest American novels ever, Huckleberry Finn, because of the word nigger. That's that's crazy. So that's that's my ideal about, you know, we just use because there's a there's a bad, uh, you know, horrific image. It's just like me, no one can't see it anymore. We can't discuss it. Just because, sure, that's not an endorsement. You could, you know, have critical analysis of those images, the effects of it. I mean, so much stuff could come out of it, but just the race. It's a funny thing. We were doing You brought up Bamboozle. When we were doing Bamboozle, we found Bugs Bunny and white fakes. I mean, Bugs Bunny and black fakes. Yeah. Warner Brothers said, hell no, you ain't getting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean. Because <laughs> that shit was in a movie. We found a cartoon. Bugs, Bunny, and Blackface. Was, was this going to be part of the
0: montage or was this going to be separate from the montage? Yeah. yeah. Bugs, Bunny. They did not
2: give that up.
1: Well, and I mean, lest we forget that Song of the South just sits in the vault and another movie that would really benefit from historical context and analysis and like having some folks talk about it rather than just like keeping it secret. And then it's like this object of fascination, which is much worse than if you could just see the movie and talk about the movie.
2: And let me give you another example. Here's the critical thing. I'm not naming any names to just and this is a very, very personal decision that people have to make individuals. Can you admire an artist's work and not admire the artist? What's your take on that? That that shit is
0: complex. Absolutely. How do you think about it? Cause I, think, I, th- I think you're right. It's it everyone depends, has to it make depends. the decision.
2: Everyone has to make their own decision. Lenny Reifen style. I mean, triumph of the will? All that stuff at the end of Star Wars, that's where it came from. Right. She worked hand in hand with Goebbels, Hitler. You watched the end of Triumph of the Will, all that stuff in Star Wars, that's where it came from. Lenny Ryan, I mean, she's a great filmmaker. Now, the fact that maybe she said, you know, you can believe it or not, well, she was a Nazi now, but she worked for Goebbels and Hitler. So it's up for me, to dis- it's up to the individual to say, can I make that separation? I want to ask one more
0: sort of big aperture question and then we'll sort of head to the speed round, uh, if you will. But I was flipping through one of my three copies of Spike Lee's Gotta Have It <laughs> this week in anticipation of this conversation. And, and towards the end of the journal, I would also say that everyone who wants to be a filmmaker should read this. Like on the list of required reading, the experience of your making that movie at that time. That's why I, I
2: wrote. That's why I wrote the book
0: it was the thing that i read first when i thought about working in hollywood and it was the thing that inspired me to do it in part it hey, look in part because it's a, it has a happy ending right like there you could there are many many other versions of make, of doing the independent uh, film thing that don't have this ending that maybe would have led me to just go be a lawyer like my mom wanted and towards the end of the journal section uh, you're at Cannes. Oh, did your mother want you to go to Harvard Law School too? I think she wanted me to go to Yale Law. I don't, I don't know. She just wanted me to get a graduate degree. I don't, I genuinely, I don't think she you cared. You should
2: never mention you went to Harvard degree. To I, I know. Well, oh, look,
0: I think it was just any graduate degree. I think if I, if I came back with a graduate degree from literally anywhere, because I think I'm the only one of my siblings that doesn't have one now, uh, I think that's the floor. It really doesn't matter the name mm. of the school at this point. But there's a... you. Basically, you write a paragraph about the film for Olivia Jahan to introduce it at the Cannes Film Festival. And that paragraph ends, in the history of American cinema too, too often black folks have had had to rely on Hollywood to tell our stories. I'm determined to change that even if it's only in a small way, we shouldn't have to rely on the Spielbergs to define our existence. Blacks have to produce their own films, period. That was March 20th, 1986. And I'm curious if your thoughts on that have changed at all over the last 35 years?
2: Well, number one, i like to say, I have nothing but respect for Steven Spielberg. Fair. And I, I certainly didn't read you know, that as, uh, we, as anything No, no, but no, that. no, look, yeah. look, it's all love. You know, I might, look, I'll be honest, I've, I've said something, stuff, you know, about his films in, 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 in you know, in the past, and as far as black folks, if I had to take it back, I would, you know, and, and uh, I said a lot of stupid stuff, just, look, I'll be honest, you know, there comes a time where, you know, look, I, I, I'm 63 years old. And, and, you know, I've been married 26 years. And Tanya's as you know, told me again and again, you have to just shut the fuck up once in a while. I mean, I've been listening. So I just want to stay. I have nothing but love for Steven Spielberg. You know, he invited me to the set twice this past summer to visit him on West Side Story, where I was sitting next to him in front of the monitor. So I got nothing but love for Steven Spielberg. Great, great, great filmmaker, and uh, I can we we're, I consider him a, a friend.
0: Well, I'm curious not about the Spielberg of it all. I'm interested mm. in the need for Black folks to produce their own films and the extent to which we have, we, to, have we have the, have the, have the, the resources. Tell
2: story. Right, but my question is, is like to the, we have to tell to what extent do we have crux, the we have have resources to, tell to do it?
0: Stories. Like, can we do that without Hollywood? Hollywood being sort of this like you know conceptual yeah, infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I mean,
2: first of all, we have to realize that film is a very risky business. Very, you know, very, very risky. So right away, that's a hurdle. And there, we, I think we gotta have a we gotta be like the, the, the old San Francisco 49er, you know, you have a running game and air game. So we gotta be working inside the system. It doesn't have to be one thing. We cannot be one dimensional. Right. Now, I was a big football fan before the NFL messed over my brother, but in any sport, if you're one dimensional,
0: yeah, they shut you down,
2: that's it's it. not gonna work. Yeah. You gotta you gotta you shit gotta be multi dimensional because if you're only doing one thing, they're gonna stop it. Yeah. yeah, you gotta you gotta have <laughs> multiple weapons. At you gotta have at least if two. If you only do one thing, that ain't gonna work. Cause people are watching film. <laughs> you gotta be able to have some surprises, some kinks, and, and mix it up. So we have to be able to n- navigate inside of Hollywood. And outside, it's not an either-or thing. And then it brings it back to you brought up the end of Malcolm X with the two quotes. And this this film is going to be 31 years 31 years old, and people have still today misinterpret that ending. And the misinterpretation is this: that Spike Lee was saying you have black folks, you have to choose Dr. King or Malcolm. No, no, no. Before it's been documented before Malcolm was assassinated these two freedom fighters were trying to find a common ground. They both wanted to get to the same destination but as my mother told me at a very young age black people are not one monolithic group. We don't all think alike. Dr. King and Malcolm did not think alike, but they both wanted freedom for their people, freedom for the world. They're different routes. And then after the quote, we show the picture, which you talked about, uh, the only picture of them ever taken. Yep. This, this is the only picture taken ever, 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 ever between these two guys. And they are smiling. They talked on the phone, but this is the only time they were ever together. Now, why would I put this picture at the end of those two quotes if they, if I didn't think that they were brothers. And also, this picture is the postcard that Smiley yeah. is selling throughout the whole movie. Daddy Colors. And it's the the, the photo. These are two great human humanitarians, both assassinated.
0: And it's the photo that Smiley puts on the wall after the pizzeria burns. The first the first yes. photo of black folks on that wall. All right, we're gonna to pivot to, to five ending questions, and we'll just go back and forth real quick, and then we got, we'll get uh, you out of here. We got five Great, minutes. Great, we're going to do this. This is the speed round. This is the speed round. Kate, take us away with the first one. We're just going to go back and forth. Quick answers. It's all about film recommendations now.
1: Yeah, and these are meant to be super fun ones. So I'm going to kick us off with what is a movie that everybody sort of agrees is terrible, but you love and will defend forever?
0: Mm. Next. All right. Okay, fair. <laughs> single, single movie moment that you expect to stay with you the longest that you yourself did not create. That's
2: a very good question because it has a lot to do with this movie. I was at the first screening at the Cinerana Dome on Sunset for Apocalypse Now. Wow. It was a 12 noon screening. That summer, in May, I graduated from Morehouse. In the fall, I was going to my first semester. in while you grad film school, my classmates were Ernest Dickinson and Ang Lee. And that summer, I was lucky enough to get an internship at Columbia Pictures. So I was at that first screening, Cinerana Dome, Sunset Boulevard. And it's funny. Every time I see Franco Coppola, he says, Spike, you told me that fucking story. Oh, wait, wait. He says, Spike, he doesn't curse. Spike, you told me that story a million times already. I said, Francis, I'm sorry. But that was one of the biggest cinematic moments of my life. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. (laughs) True story. Francis and Spike, you told me this a million times. It's amazing. And nothing was Scorsese. Every time I see Marty, Marty. My mother took me to see Mean Street. Spike, you told me that a million times. (laughs) So both of those guys, (laughs) when they see me, they say, oh, no, here comes Spike. Tell me a story. They told you told me a million times already.
1: (laughs) You just got to remember, I feel like that was them going up to like Bergman and stuff. And like, let me tell you about (laughs) wild strawberries, Ingmar. Like, everybody's a fan. Yeah. We all got to remember, like, it's all a tradition.
2: You're you're, you're absolutely
0: true. All right. This next question is, I used to work for Sidney Pollack. And so it's inspired by him. He once told me that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects because they were the only two things that we had no greater understanding of now than we did thousands of years ago, and that's love and war. So what is your favorite movie about love and your favorite movie about war? I think I know the answer to the second question already.
2: My greatest war films, I mean, there are homages to them in The Five Bloods. Yeah. Two obvious homages, Apocalypse Now. And another one is uh, Bridge River Quad, those two words, madness. Madness, love. Let me see love. Well, I'm gonna go for. I'm gonna say West Side Story.
0: Love, love it. All right. So I want to. I want to provide a preamble to this last question because when Kate and I st- first started the podcast, we asked each other the questions that we ask everybody else, and without any foregrounding, both of our answers independently were do the right thing, and that was. More than four months ago. What was the question? You're, you're about to hear it, but this was more, uh, shut This up. was more than four months ago. So with that preamble, I'm going to let Kate close us out with this question.
1: So we ask everybody this question, and the question is, what is the movie, if you could hold a worldwide screening for every person on planet Earth simultaneously, what is the movie you would screen for them?
0: But I'm going to add the additional caveat, you cannot have directed
1: it.
2: Mm. Now, I, I get in trouble with questions like this. This is about love, though. I know, I'm still in trouble, you know, when I, I know these people, when I Spike was up. You gonna say my film? Well, let, can I say this, can I answer this as it to be from a deceased filmmaker? Absolutely. One film. Right. I, don't care. I don't care I don't care. if they're alive or dead, where they're
0: from. The one movie you screen for literally every human soul on Earth.
2: On the Waterfront. Direct by Cassand, directed my dear, dear friend, Bud Schilberg. We wrote a script together about Joe Lewis, the one that made a promise to him before Bud died. I would get it made and we're going to get it made.
0: Now I have to ask, when is it getting made? Cause that's, that's like one of the mythical ones.
2: Well, so is Joe, so is Jackie Robinson, you know, couldn't get that made too. But it's going to, I mean, I made a promise. I mean, I think that film kept Bud alive another six months and I'm not making a joke.
0: Because
2: he would call me up and say, Spike, did you get the money yet? Did you get the money? So, uh, on the waterfront, I mean, goddamn, Brando, Kazan, Schulberg, Leonard Bernstein, his only score, that's my shit right there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On the motherfucking waterfront. And I think that's how we need to end things. Spike. It's an honor, I don't even know what to say.
1: Thank you so much, Spike.
2: Guys, thank you very much.
0: From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Hansani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Dick Pertel composed our theme music. And this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, at Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagen girl, girl, G-R-R-L on both. And we, The Blacklist, are the, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, join us over on Luminary. We can hear
2: more great episodes. Visit luminary.link slash black voices. That's luminary.link slash black voices.